Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bala Musitz, coming to you from the Capital Region campus of Clarkson University in Schenectady, New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at Clarkson University. And coming to you from my home in Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. First, I want to thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy listening to today's podcast as much as we enjoyed creating it. Second, I want to answer a common question, which is, why are we doing this? Uh, and it's certainly not to make money, just so you realize, but the two of us both like to learn from smart and interesting people. Uh, we're interested in how the world is changing. We're interested in how innovation and entrepreneurship in particular are changing. Uh, and we like to kind of overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons we've each learned over three plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've kind of reached out to our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with other people we've met more recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. But before we get to today's guest, a quick thank you to our listeners. This week, we exceeded 5,000 listeners to our podcast. When Mike and I started this podcast nine months ago, we did not know what to expect. And hey, Bela, let's be honest. We were thinking that if we got 50 listeners, it would be worth our effort and expense. Like 50 people that weren't my mother and your cousin, right? Uh, so I realize we're no Joe Rogan or anything here, but it's fun to think about this as a growing endeavor. Uh, we've learned a lot along the way so far, and we're looking forward to continuing this little endeavor with our listeners into the future. And as always, thank you to our sponsors, Münster University of Applied Sciences and Clarkson University here in upstate New York. Now, today's guest is one we invited on in response to a reader request from Matt B. will obscure his last name to protect his privacy. Uh, Matt uh, asked us if we could bring on a guest who could talk about the value of data analytics for entrepreneurs. So I reached out into my network, and today's guest is a data scientist that I know with a PhD from the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and he previously started his own business. Uh, he's also a former university professor, as well as the founder and CEO of Tuple Work Sciences. Uh, he's consulted with, as, as part of this organization, he's consulted with small and large businesses on a variety of topics related to analytics. Now, currently, our guest is a research psychologist at the U.S. Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences in Alexandria, Virginia. So, Garrett Howerson is our guest today, uh, and uh, let's get to it. Hey, Mike, before we dive in, I just wanted to point out, uh, this was an other podcast guest uh, where they found the internship, or in his case, a fellowship, as it's called in uh, the PhD space, uh, as a career element of, of his uh, career trajectory. Uh, and I love the way Garrett turned his passion into his career. And, uh, you know, we've heard from many, many guests this notion of an internship and how it pays a how it plays a pivotal role in where they end up in life. And uh, here again, we saw Garrett demonstrate that. So let's jump right into today's interview with Garrett Howardson. Today's guest is Garrett Howardson. Garrett is a research psychologist at the U.S. Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences in beautiful Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, Garrett is also the founder and CEO of Tuple Work Science, uh, which is a data analytics company that Garrett will tell you about in a minute. 
Uh, Garrett's taught at George Washington and Hofstra universities, and he has a PhD in industrial organizational psychology from the George Washington University. Garrett, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll see. We'll see at the end if it really worked out well, if you're miserable or I'm miserable, but I think, I think this will be really interesting, uh, half hour or so. Ah, before we start, Garrett, as a government employee, you need to say something, right? I do. Uh, I need to say that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are my own and do not reflect any official policy of the Department of the Army, Department of the Defense, or the United States government. Beautiful. Thank you. Now that we got that out of the way, um, tell me your story, Gary. I mean, I know your story. You and I have known each other, I don't know what, maybe seven or eight years, something like that? That's- yeah, yeah, that's right, right, about 2011, yeah. And we've worked together on some different projects and our paths have crossed many times. Um, so it's kind of cool that you agreed to do this, uh, knowing that it's a kind of a non-standard, I think, thing, right? I don't think a lot of your colleagues have been on podcasts, have they? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, good. So somebody's got to be first. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I, I, I know your background, but tell the listeners a little bit about what you do right now and I think even more importantly, how you got here. Sure. So what I do now is, um, like Mike said, I work for the U.S. Army Research Institute for Behavioral and Social Sciences. I am in the Foundational Sciences Research Unit, and within that, um, I'm part of the basic research team. And I manage the learning and training portfolio within that team. So one thing that we do is we fund academics um, to do research that we think will be impactful and valuable for the army, you know, 10, 15 years down the road. Um, and either we don't have the skills or the time to do that research. Um, we also do our own internal research. My background is in, like you said, IO psychology, and, um, I'm very passionate about learning and training in organizations or just in general, how people learn to perform their jobs or learn to do their jobs. Um, and so I researched that within the army, um, across a lot of, lenses, uh, one of which is quantitative, uh, and uh, that's where some of my background in analytics comes in. Um, and that's all fun and good and well, and I like being in research. That's cool. And for, I think some of our listeners might not know what an industrial organizational psychologist does. I happen to be married to one, so I know the answer to this question, but maybe you could explain a little bit about the, the basics of industrial organizational or IO psychology. Sure. Great, great question. Uh, So it has a very long history and the name is somewhat convoluted. Um, It used to be way back when it just industrial psychology. So if you've ever heard the term scientific management or, um, you know, Taylor, if you've ever taken an HR class, the idea was basically that people were parts of the machine and that if we could get them to work in a standardized way, like the machine would overall be better. Um, and then later on, and that's kind of the industrial side. And then later on, uh, we realized, oh, hey, people have thoughts and opinions and motivations, um, and they're more than just cogs in the machine. And so it spun off this whole other world of um, thinking about people's beliefs and attitudes and well-being, really. And that became more of the organizational side. Uh, but in general, You could describe IO psychologists more as work psychologists, um, but not in the sort of clinical world of psychology. So we deal with normal um, 
population behaviors and normal population sorts of uh, characteristics like teamwork and leadership and motivation and just try to understand how all those pieces fit together to make for a more effective organization, um, but also to make for a happier and more productive employee. Cool. And that's similar to what you're doing right now in your job, right? Is trying to figure out ways that the people who work for the army can learn better and faster and yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's one of the cool things about this field is that it's it's necessarily spans these levels of conceptualization. So we're trying to do things that maximize the organization's good, but also maximize the individual's good. And so how can we have in the Army, for example, train? How can people learn their jobs better and more enjoyably and more effectively, um, but also in a way that satisfies what the army wants to accomplish from that organizational level. Yeah. Cause you spend a lot to recruit and retrain, retain talent, right? Yeah. You'd like a certain percentage of them to stay right. Even after their right. contractual ob- obligation is over. Exactly. And yeah. So it's neat. And if you, yeah. <laughs> and, and the consequence of screwing up might be a little bigger there uh, in, your, in, in the areas that you work on, right, than, say, you know, me teaching 20-year-old undergraduates, right? Yeah, depending on the situation, absolutely. Um, they, and that's where, why the Army places such a big emphasis on, on training. And it's, you know, this, this idea of you play like you practice, right? So we... We train, 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 train when we don't have to do something so that when we're actually called to do something, they know how to do it. And it's it's more of like um, a reflex instead of having to, to stop and really think about what's going to happen. Because it, it can be very high stakes situations and time matters. Um, yeah, it is. You're right. Errors are magnified, right? So, yeah, exactly. Cool. So let's then... and, and the, at the, at the Army Research Institute, this is kind of your second go around, right? You worked there when you were a PhD student, if I remember correctly, right? I did, yeah. I was, um, it, it, they call it a research fellow, is basically the equivalent of an intern um, as a student uh, in the same unit that I'm in right now, actually the same team. Um, and I was the, my mentor was, uh, the position that my mentor was in is the position I'm in now. She was managing the learning and training portfolio. Um, so, yeah, although I've only been with Army Research Institute for a little over a year as a research psychologist, I've been there overall for about four or five years. Doing the you same thing. Like, student. Yeah, yeah, pretty much the same thing, yeah. yeah with, well, well, as they didn't screw that up for all those years. Yeah, right? I mean, they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't right. have to come back. Right? Yeah, that's what I keep telling myself. Yeah, yeah, but don't get, you know, it's not too late, right? Yeah, <laughs> you always have to be careful. But and then you had a couple of interesting stops in between. You had a you had a little gig as a as an academic, kind of in my world. Um, yeah, and right that was like meh, right? And, yeah, and then and then you had I think the interesting part of the story right now, you know, for me, which is which is still kind of there under the surface. Tell me a little bit about striking out on your own. You you I remember you telling me like I'm gonna do this. And I'm like, what's this? And you were kind of explaining to me your, your basic approach and, and wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought this was really cool. 
Yeah. So I, like you said, I, after grad school, I was a assistant professor of psychology at Hofstra for a little bit and um, for about you know, a little over a year. And it just wasn't quite, it wasn't the right structure for me, I realized. Um, and we moved to New York to do that and really kind of missed DC a lot. And so eventually moved back to DC um, and I tried, I, I didn't, I got a job in the area doing research and then also kind of realized that's not, that's not really my thing either in that particular structure. Um, and I've always had, I've had this background in IO psychology, but I've also had a background in computer science. Um, and so I thought, well, these two worlds are doing, they're, they're interested in very similar things. They're trying to understand human behavior using data. But the way that a computer scientist does it is, on the surface at least, very different from the way that an IO psychologist would do it. Part of what I say on the surface, because if you peel back all of the jargon and really get down to the core of what they're trying to do, there are a lot of similarities between those different groups of people. And so my goal with Tuple or with, with this company was to come in and, and help strip away that jargon because I know a little bit, I know the worlds of both fairly well and say, okay, here's what you actually have in common. Here's what you are trying to do. Here's where you think that you're doing something different. Here's where it's similar. And then also trying to, um, the large part was to, to do projects that demonstrate the intersection between uh, IO psychology and computer science within this analytics world. And to say, you're right, here's how we can use these advanced computational tools and trying to build some advanced computational tools that do that, um, but do so in a way that are more approachable for someone without a computer science background. Which I think is awesome. Right? Now, I, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I was really excited about it. And I've always had this. I, I find the two worlds very interesting, which is partly why I've tried to keep a foot in psychology and computer science. Um, and it's just, yeah, I think it is really fun. Yeah. And I also think the market isn't quite ready for it yet. I think you're ahead a little bit, right? And I think that it's pretty hard um, to to explain to people why this is a really valuable integration of two ways of thinking and two sets of analytical tools uh, and two sets of theories, right? And I think yeah. that... I think in a, a couple of years, the world will be beating a path to your door on this because, I mean, you're still publishing stuff and you're still doing some cool stuff in this space. But I think this is really the, the, the future um, of solving some of these questions about how to improve people's performance and how to improve organizational performance. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's my hope. Um, I hope it there are some indicators that it, it's starting this gap between those two worlds is starting to bridge. Um, and so, you know, at, at the army, I review a lot of proposals and all of the proposals are about, you know, social science behavior, behavioral and social sciences. And we're seeing a lot of interdisciplinary teams. Um, and these teams include, you know, psychologists, IO psychologists, engineers, computer scientists, and so they are starting to get together and try to bridge these gaps, um, but it is still very early and it's in, you know it's in its infancy that idea of, of what you're talking about. And 
part of it, I really do think is, is so much a language thing. The, they just have different worlds, different languages, and trying to get past that will take time. You know, it, it, imagine it as two different cultures, and then all of a sudden, two different cultures were co-located. Um, each has their own set of values and norms and beliefs. They're not going to start immediately meshing with each other. There's going to be some conflict and working oh, and it trust out. Trust issues. I think there's huge, right? Culture yeah. A doesn't fully trust culture B because they don't fully understand them. Culture B doesn't fully trust culture A because they don't understand them. Exactly. You know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like there. Yeah. There's definitely distrust and there's um, within each community, a sort of, in my experience, at least a sort of, um, you know, it's, it's homophily people like things similar to themselves. And so if you're looking across this gap and seeing a group of say computer scientists doing something different, you're like, Oh, that's not my, that's not my path. That's not me. That's, that's not how I would do it. That's completely different. I'm just going to stick to what I know and the people that I know. Um, and the computer scientists do the same thing. You know, they look at social scientists and probably think, wow, you guys are using very antiquated computational tools and mathematical tools. I don't have any interest in trying to work with you because I'm trying to go out and do these more advanced things. Um, and it takes those boundary spanners to really get past that. Yeah, this is cool. So, yeah, you're a boundary spanner. I like the way that you describe that. And you tried to build an entrepreneurial organization that's boundary spanning. And there's a lot of risk there. That's where all the cool stuff happens, I think, in business is at the intersection of two uh, fields or of two two sets of concepts or two sets of values. But the road is always rocky in, be in between yeah. those, uh, those two walls. But, but For sure. Okay, let's go back. So you said you had an... Uh, psychology and computer science and i think if i remember correctly you your bachelor's degree was was it both computer science and psychology or just computer science i forget no my bachelor was in um psychology and i had a minor in computer science yeah, that went with that yeah and that was where that was at university of south dakota in the thriving metropolis of vermilion south dakota excellent and you grew up in yes. south dakota I did. I was born and, and raised in South Dakota. Um, up until the age of eight, I lived in a town called Raymond, South Dakota, which was about 100 people. Um, yeah. And then after uh, eight, we moved to a to the city, um, meaning Clark, South Dakota, which was about 1000 people. Um, <laughs> And I think I heard uh, someone that's been on here before the, the phrase, which definitely holds for Clark, South Dakota and Raymond, more cows than people, which is hands down true. Um, so, I, yeah, and I went to high school there. Um, and after high school, went on to, to college, went to USD, um, University of South Dakota. And then after that, decided, well, I, after that, I took a year off and I was a... Uh, uh, manager at Target of the guest service people. So if, when you're checking out, sometimes you'll see like a person um, you know, directing you down a certain path to try to manage flow of customers and also manage, you know, customer satisfaction and help the cashiers. So I oversaw that and the customer service desk and like the return sort of area and guest service. And you learn a lot um, about psychology in those positions. Yeah. Yes. 
uh, an incredible amount um, about people in general. Um, just, yeah, it, you would, yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I could probably talk, I could do a whole hour just talking about that. Probably. We should. I mean, we'll see if, if this one is, uh, you know, people like, yeah, I want that. They'll write in. They'll say, hey, I want more, more Garrett. Yeah. We want to do, we want to do Target Day, right? About the psychology I mean, of retail. Retail, people that work in retail and make a career in retail, I have absolute respect for. It is a really, really hard job and it is a lot of emotional labor. It's very stressful, but I mean, you are still get, you're interacting a lot with people every day, so it can be very rewarding, but yeah yeah this is an underappreciated uh industrial segment uh of our economy yeah uh, yeah but yeah okay and then so like were your family into data science or i mean how did you get into the stats whole where did that come from good I mean, question uh machine, i will say from first hand <laughs> right i try to be um so this I, I guess you know looking way back i was always pretty good at math. I, I didn't really appreciate that. And I found it very interesting. But I also didn't know that there were things like careers in statistics and math, right? So like, I didn't know that you could take something you're interested in, like math and, and make a career out of it. Um, it was and, to get through to graduate high school. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, in undergrad, you know, I don't really, I, I, I'm thankful every day that I made the choice to, to also get a computer science degree. I can't claim that there was any sort of reason behind it other than I liked computers and I liked working with computers and I liked programming and I liked learning all that stuff. And so I was primarily focused on psychology, but then um, primarily interested in psychology, but then just doing the computer science for, I guess, fun. Um, I wanted to learn about it. Uh, but then the more I learned about it, the more interested I became. Um, and then when I went to grad school, I focused primarily on training, um, but then realized there's this field of psychometrics, which is pretty much the application of math and statistics to measuring psychological characteristics and realizing how powerful those tools are um, and how really without a strong foundation of psychometric theory and research, what you're trying to do to measure human behavior is kind of like flipping a coin or, you know, even something more random than that. Um, so from your town of a hundred, high school, college, kind of doing things just because you like doing them with a stop at Target for a year, right? And then you yep. go to grad school and it starts to all come together? Yeah. Um, and then in grad school, as part of the, I would say IO psychology as a field is fairly quantitative, um, especially if you're leaning more towards the industrial side or the I side. There's um, a lot of measurement, a lot of testing. Um, there's a lot of quantitative uh, issues involved with that. Um, and so we have a, a lot of coursework in those areas. We, we take, you know, advanced statistics and then you have options to take more advanced statistics if you want. And every step along the way, I just discovered a, a, a stronger interest in, in statistics. And 
so the intro class, I was, I showed up and I was, I was scared out of my mind because I was like, oh my God, I'm in a, a, a doctoral stats class. This is going to be something I can't handle. Um, this is going to be way, and it was hard. It was a lot of hard work, but I was so interested in it. And then it just sparked something and then kept taking more and more classes. And then after I was done with classes, just kept, you know, reading more and more about this stuff and taking online classes and learning about all these things on my own. Um, and then just continued to grow as a, an interest. Um, and then, so it, it's not always clear, depending on who you talk to, statistics and computer science are very different worlds. And so then I started to get into some areas where those became more the same path. And I started to see some connections between the statistics things I was learning, the psychometric things I was learning and computer science and the computational tools. Um, and that's where I really started to, to think about, wow, computer science and psychology, especially some of these more quantitative psych areas actually have a lot in common. They use very different terminology, but at the end of the day, they're trying to accomplish something very similar. Cool. And that's really, I think this foot in both worlds that you have, I think is a, is a really neat thing. Um, one of the, the, one of the reasons that I asked you to be on the podcast is we had a listener question a little while ago that asked about how analytics can be applied um, to entrepreneurship or for, to serve entrepreneurs essentially. And now you've had this time under your belt as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, this space, um, maybe can you help me answer this question a little bit and figuring out um, how should entrepreneurs and small business people use analytics? Right. And that is a great question. Um, and I'm going to use a quote from, he's actually a, uh, he's a computer scientist. His name is Judea Pearl. He's um, one of the people leading the forefront of trying to make causal inferences from actual data. And this will make it, it'll be relevant. But his quote is that you have to remember data are dumb. Like there, there tends to be this, this thought that if you just go out and collect a bunch of data about all these different things and then let it sit there and maybe sprinkle in some magic dust that the data are going to come together and tell you something about what you should do. And that's about as far from true as, as you could possibly ever get. Um, because, and, and people will use terms like, oh, the data say, data are dumb. Data don't say anything. Um, and they only know how to answer a very limited set of questions. If you think of them as something that's animate. Um, and so I have another example that if you, if you would humor me, um, I used to lie. Actually, the first time someone asked me this question, I got a little angry because I was like, that, that's really dumb. And then the more I've sat and, and mulled on it, I'm like, okay, there's actually some wisdom to that. So, Mike, I actually want to ask you a question. Do you know what time it is? I do. I can tell you that it's 1339 here in Münster, Germany. Okay. That's great, but you didn't, well, you kind of did. Uh, the way this was phrased to me was, that's great, but you didn't answer the question that was asked. You actually answered it and you answered something else on top of it. Okay. So the question was, do you know what time it was? And you said, I do. So that's answering the question that was asked. Okay. Yeah. 
And giving the actual time is over and above that. That was not the question that was asked. And the first time this was posed to me, I, I laughed at it and thought that's just a, that's a, a, a dumb language thing that people understand. It's implied, right? When someone asks that question, they're looking for the actual time. But um, Judea Pearl, the way that he thinks about this is that data are dumb and that they will answer the question that you ask them. Um, so everything depends on asking the right question. And so if I ask the data, what time is it? The data will, or do you know what time it is? The data will say, I do. But if I really wanted to know what time is it, I need to ask the data that to get that right information back. Yeah. What, and so what time is it? The second question you asked was the question that I answered, right? I right. Answered two questions. Do you know yes. what time it is and what time is it? Right, exactly. And that might seem like a very silly example, but I really think with analytics and statistics and, and drawing inferences from data, it's really those subtleties that matter. And so before you can even think about collecting data, before you can ever think about analyzing any, anything, which is where the analytics, you know, people tend to jump to, you have to start with the right question. And the right question has to be what you want to learn about. And the question has to be very specific and it has to be framed in very simplistic, natural language, right? So how can entrepreneurs use analytics? Well, okay. One way is you could go out and collect a bunch of data and throw it into some SATS process, right? That's like, that's the equivalent of just going to Times Square and asking random people, can you solve this problem for me? Um, that's not going to be very helpful. But if you step back and say, okay, what, what is it that I want to learn about? Let's say I want to learn about um, customer engagement, for example. Okay. Can you define just in normal plain language what customer engagement is? And I suspect, and I, I've kind of experimented with this, for a lot of a lot of terms or concepts or ideas um, that are very popular in not just entrepreneurship in practice in general, they have this implied um, intuitive meaning that everybody thinks that they get, and they think that everybody else thinks that same way about what it is, but that's not true. And so, if you push a little bit more and say, okay, well, what does engagement mean? Can you actually describe that? It takes people a second or two. And I think once you get to that point and realize that, oh, wow, this is actually something a little bit more complex than what I thought, let me sit down and think about what engagement actually is, right? And if you can come up with a very good definition, a plain language definition of what something like engagement means, um, that's descriptive, then the cues should be in that definition that will give you the right, um, the right ammo to ask the right questions, to get back the right answers. So my opinion is that the first thing you should do if you wanna use analytics in entrepreneurship is ignore the word analytics. <laughs> um, because it really applies, it, it, it gives this connotation of analyzing data. And so it means you already have the data and you're gonna throw the data into this analysis machine and get back this truthful question, but data are dumb and they will only answer the question they're asked. So cool. Yeah. So how, if you're an entrepreneur, how should you start to think about asking these right questions is let's, 
I mean, think about your business for a second. What were the questions that you needed the answer to about customers or the market or the 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 process you went through to to serve a client? Yeah, um, most of the questions that I had to ask involved trying to get past, trying to ask things or phrase questions, ask things in a way that got past the initial uh, jargony response Mm -hmm. and dug a little deeper into what it was they were actually trying to accomplish um, using more of, you know, just describe to me in normal language what it is that you want to learn about. Um, And that, I think in the future, if there's any way that entrepreneurship or the thing that I was trying to do can advance bringing these two worlds together is to really come up with a better way to ask those questions. Um, Because the way that I approached it just is not not scalable. It's not efficient. Um, It's basically an in-depth one-on-one interview uh, and eventually you get there and that's, that's great. And I can fi- eventually figure out what it is that you're trying to do and how that relates to something someone else is doing. But the amount of resources required to do that is not very realistic. Neat. So we could build an app that would have a natural language conversation system that would be asking um, a, a, a business person questions about um, customer engagement. Who are your customers? Give me an example of a customer that's satisfied. Let's talk about customers that are dissatisfied. Describe to me your process for um, when a customer, from the, the start of the customer recognizes they want to buy your product to the time that they do research, to the time that they actually buy the product, take the product home. Um, to talk me through those steps. And then if we could design a system that collected those data in natural language, right? Then yeah. all of a sudden we'd have a scalable solution. We could help identify the points where you might lose the attention of a customer, where a customer might make the choice to go to a competitor, where the customer right. might not understand what the service that or the what the product that you've designed does and isn't happy with it, uh, or the product doesn't last long enough, and identifying those points. And if, yeah. if we did that, could then you do something with those those data? If we could figure out um, if we had the data that matched the the steps that the customer took from A to Z? Possibly. I think it's a step in the right direction. And this is, um, I think if you ask a a computer scientist, especially a computer scientist who has specialty in natural language processing, or a lot of times you'll just see it NLP, um, they might be inclined to say, that's not a real problem. We can already do that, which is true. There are advanced computational tools that can, um, so if, you, if you've ever interacted with a chatbot, for example, or anything like that, well, these are advanced artificial intelligence and computer science and analytic tools that are taking the words that you're actually putting and breaking them down and turning them into math, and then using that math to identify what words to reply with. And in the process of doing that, they can have a conversation with you. And that's, that is amazing. You can do a lot of really great things with that. Um, that's also, the, in general, the same concept behind Alexa. 
um, or Siri or any of these advanced AI voice activated things where you, you know, say, Alexa, what time is it? Or Alexa, what movies are showing today? Um, that's a computer program that's taking your natural language and turning it into math and then using that math to identify words to re respond back to you. So from that perspective, they might tend to think it's not a problem. Um, the challenge is that that middle step of turning the language into math, that is where the theory of human behavior and psychology becomes so important because the math part is really just, um, it's a means, right? It's a means of taking something and transforming, transforming it into something else. But the real question is, is that process valid? Is that actually consistent with how people think and how people behave? And how can we map that process onto actual social behavior? Um, and there are a lot of people that do that social behavior research, social psychologists, there's a whole bunch of different areas. Um, marketing, there's some people doing awesome stuff and, and very heavily quantitative stuff in measurement of um, marketing sorts of questions. But there's still a huge gap between taking those theoretical ideas and connecting them to the math in between. Um, because if you ask a computer scientist to develop these systems, you know, turn the language into math to get more language to get back, they're approaching it from an efficiency standpoint, from, you know, a, an effectiveness standpoint, not necessarily from a theoretical human behavior standpoint. And so there's still this gulf there. So the short answer is yes, I think that would be a step in the right direction. Um, but until we can get people or social scientists, it, I think the bigger problem for that is getting social scientists and people who study human behavior to get a little bit more math oriented so that they can actually understand what that, that, that translation process is happening um, and weigh in on whether what's happening is consistent with how people actually behave um, and is consistent with the theory of human behavior. Um, and I think that's, that's the harder path to get to that point. Interesting. So, and some of this, if, if we can do this, we'll make these chatbots more effective. Like, should entrepreneurs use chatbots? You can, you can do this pretty inexpensively, right? You can sign on with a service, right? And you can plug in the, your frequently asked questions and things like that, right? And you can get right. a chatbot to work for your small business. Good idea or bad idea? Um, I, I'm going to be a little more nuanced. I would say it's an unknown idea. Um, and what I mean by that is, so one thing I've taken from my, my background in psychometrics is that it's seldom about ever getting a number to represent something. It's how you interpret that number and how you use that number to make inferences. Um, and within psychometrics and psychological measurement, we spend a lot of time um, breaking down the process explicitly of turning something into a number so that we know every step along the way and that we know how one step contributes to the next step. So at the end, we know what that score, that, that number actually means. Um, in computational terms, there are these really powerful for a lot of things, 
methods um, of artificial intelligence that fit into what are called black box methods. Um, they take something in like text, so say it's a chatbot, and they use these advanced computational tools and to, to combine that information and get a, a value. But the way that they combine that information isn't necessarily unique or known sometimes or even well understood. It's a very complex process. So you could use, say, a chatbot sort of thing, um, and you could sign on to one of these services, and they might um, for sure help you. It might seem like you have a chatbot and you're getting information from customers and that that's providing you valuable information. But if you can't fully describe that process of how it's being turned into the information you're receiving, um, there's a real question about the validity of that process. Um, so, and there's probably no way for a typical entrepreneur to, to know that, right? Not, not in, it's not a fast solution. No, I, unless to do that, you, I mean, you'd have to have, you'd have to spend a lot of time in computer science and in math and in psychology to, to do all that. So, I mean, yeah, it's a yeah, fat chance, right? I mean, yeah. these are people that want to start their own business. They're not spending years and years of right time studying these things. So, and, and then my other, a second question related to this is, okay, if I have a chat bot and um, I want to keep refining it, right? To keep getting in more information to help me learn um, what the process actually is and what the behaviors are. That takes a fair amount of iterations, right? It takes a fair amount of interactions. And if you're a small business and you're only having eight customers a day, would yeah. you ever get enough information in real time to improve your models so that the chat bot was being more effective? Right. That is, that's a great point and a, and a great question. And I think no. And I think that's where it comes in of asking the right question is more important up front. Right. So let's say you're right that for a lot of these, especially black box methods to be accurate, they require an incredible amount of data and an incredible amount of, of input. So, Part of the reason that, say, um, a system like Alexa can be so powerful and efficient and effective is because there are a lot of people that use Amazon, right? There's a ton of people. And so this system can collect all that data and learn from it and eventually get better. Um, if you try to apply those methods to something like well, you're talking about a small eight-person sort of sample, they're not going to be necessarily effective. Um, and so that goes back then to the, the question. So for something like Alexa, um, the question might be, how can we take this massively large input from people and come up with a sort of um, individualized prediction or estimate for what we think that person is wanting to do? For the situation that you asked, I don't even know if you would need quantitative methods to do that. If you have eight customers, for example, or a small number of customers, um, you could just do interviews with them occasionally and say, okay, well, I want to learn, my, my question might be, I want, uh, what do, what do each of my customers think about when they're in this situation? Um, you know, you could just maybe come up with a hypothetical situation, um, 
grab a couple of customers, see if they'd be interested, you know, maybe give them some sort of incentive to do this and then just have an in-depth interview with them. And either you or you and a small team can go through that information and synthesize, you know, the similar sorts of conclusions that these large scale, massive computational tools are trying to do. So yeah. It, yeah, analytics and quantitative methods aren't always the answer, right? To some questions they are, but to some questions they aren't. Yeah, this is what I'm hearing, and this is kind of what is emerging to me, and, and we can talk a little bit about this. But yeah, analytics can do amazing things, and large data sets can, can tell you a lot if, as you really pointed out very clearly, you're asking the right questions. Um, but for entrepreneurs, sometimes if your business is small and even if it's growing fast, there's much more effective ways that you can answer these questions, right? Formulate right. the questions and answer the questions. So don't be right. Distracted by the shiny penny that analytics is right now. Um, yeah. And it, cause this might not be the, the right tool for your organization and entrepreneurs yeah. might be really careful of that. Yeah, no, I would agree a hundred percent. And in situations like that, you might actually benefit more from just talking to other entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. you know, like joining, I've seen some of these groups come up where it's, it's like, you, sometimes you have to pay to be a member, but it's, it's like a, a group of small business CEOs and they just come together once a month or, you know, or even phone or face to face yep, and not, not direct competitors, right? Yeah. They, they talk about the challenges they're experiencing and they, they talk about how they even tried to solve them and, you know, for small scale problems, that's completely doable. Yeah, no, these are great. And this is a great takeaway. And um, maybe what I can do is put a couple of links in the show notes. But there are some organizations that do these kind of user groups um, where they group people in kind of similar industries that are not direct competitors. Um, and you can talk together. There's a facilitator and you do you pay for it typically. And yeah. you want to pay for it. A good facilitator for these types of, of user groups is, is well worth it. Um, and you compare experiences you share if there's data to be shared you can share that you can aggregate some of that data to look at the bigger trends uh, and you can share expertise and network and these things can be fantastic um, so yeah I think that's a great that's a great point maybe that's something I can build into the show notes yeah I, I mean especially for a small a small entrepreneur group and they're, they're trying to grow I think that is a more practical short-term solution and a better investment um, well, actually, in the short and long term, then paying for these, the shiny penny that you talked about, these, you know, fancy analytics platforms that people are claiming can do magic. Um, until you can, until you can develop and keep learning the skills to be able to evaluate whether what they're saying is actually true, or so you get big enough to hire someone to be able to look at it and say, yeah, this is good, or this is, you know, a bunch of hooey. Yeah. No, this is cool. And I think there's some exceptions. I think there's in agriculture, there's some things that are doing that are crunching amazing weather data and localized mm. soil conditions and things like this um, that can be really useful. So I think there's some exceptions to this. But yeah, I think in general, this is a nice conclusion that analytics is great. It's large data set. It's, you have to ask the right questions. It might not be the right tool for a lot of small business people. Um, but it's something you should keep in mind and as your business grows and ramps up and you can afford yep. to first bring in a consultant to maybe look and see at the data that you're collecting as you're starting to collect more and more data um, and you're starting to understand what your business problems are more clearly that a good consultant can help. And then eventually maybe you can hire somebody uh, that can focus 
uh, on this, especially if you're in a company, an organization that that um, that generates a lot of data, right? Yeah, right. Right. Some some types of businesses generate more data than others. Right. Exactly. Or quantitative yeah. data, I guess, is probably more accurate. Interesting. Okay. Third question. This is really cool, Garrett. Thank you. Um, what advice would you have for people who might be interested in a career in analytics? You know, you talked about this idea of I had no idea, um, you know, what you could do with a, a degree like this. And I think um, now we're in this age where there's a lot of hype, um, but you're kind of right in the meat of things. What do you see? What, what do you recommend for you, maybe young people who are interested in this or maybe even mid-career people who've always had kind of interest in stats and, and know, uh, have some base knowledge? Where do you see the opportunities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before about how um, I, I'm a huge, I, I plan a lot. I like to have a plan for everything. And most of the time that plan never pans out. Um, and something goes down a different path and things end up being, you know, as okay or even better than if I would have followed my actual plan. Um, and that's what you described. I think my progression of learning about you know, statistics and, and analytics and quantitative methods is that I thought, you know, I have this planned out path or career in psychology and this other stuff is fun, but I'm never really going to be able to use it. And then, oh, wow, I'm starting to see those connections. I think it's really, really important to have that, to be able to step back and say, you know, this stuff is kind of cool and I find this interesting. I don't actually know why I find this interesting right now. And I don't have a clear vision for how I would use this tomorrow. But it seems like there's something here. It seems like this could be valuable and pursuing those learning experiences and those learning opportunities. Um, there are an incredible amount of resources online uh, for learning about these some of these advanced analytics or machine learning tools. Um, you know, some sites like Coursera or edX, they have entire free courses on machine learning and they target all the way from, I have no idea what computer science is at all to I'm you know, looking to get more into the weeds of how this algorithm actually works. Um, you know, pretty much everybody has a blog these days. There's a million machine learning blogs. A lot of them are written in plain language. Um, so you can go out and learn about these sorts of things. So basically, I guess my, my biggest advice would be just be open, be open to new information, even if you can't immediately see how you would use that information. I think if you anchor too much on, well, I don't know how I would use that, so I can't do that. I have no interest. You're pigeonholing yourself and you're being overly restrictive and you're not going to be able to find connections between things that will ultimately be valuable. Cool. Awesome. All right, we actually went a little over the time that I promised you, and I know you have a lot to do today. Uh, but Garrett Howardson, research psychologist at the U.S. Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences. Garrett, thanks a lot for joining us. And I do love the idea of maybe coming back uh, soon, and we can do a whole uh, another podcast on the, the psychology of the retail experience in 21st century United States culture. That would be interesting. I, I mean, I, I would be open to that. All right. All right. Thanks Thank so you much. very much for having me. Uh, this was really fun. I had a really good time. Pleasure was mine. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Garrett. Thanks. All right. Talk to you, Mike. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bela, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on my interview with Garrett. 
Yeah, so I thought there was a several really good takeaways there. And uh, let me just uh, sort of pick on one for now. Uh, one thing that he talked about, uh, he really didn't talk about this, but let me, let me put it this way. One thing that I concluded from listening to him is that he, he clearly is very driven. Uh, he, he turned his passion into his career. And what he's done is he's tried several different types of organizations uh, to work for, to be part of, before he sort of figured out what works well for him. So, you know, he has a PhD, so he tried being a professor, tried the academic thing, and I think he came to the conclusion, eh, that's not for me. Uh, he did a startup, um, and he has that going, uh, but it's not really jumping in with both feet, uh, and now he's working at a government research organization. Uh, and still doing some uh, startup stuff on the side. So I think the lesson there is that for many of us, it does take uh, a few probes into various different types of organizations, sizes of organizations, uh, to kind of figure out what works best for us. And for each of us, that might be very different. And for some of us, we figure that out right away, and we get lucky when our very first uh, sort of job uh, and for other folks, uh, sometimes it takes uh, a number of years to figure that out. So I thought that was a really good sort of conclusion that I came to in listening to Garrett. Uh, what was one of your takeaways, Mike? Well, just to build on that, kind of the story behind the story, and I didn't talk to, about this on the podcast interview with Garrett, but I can tell you this is some of the drivers of his kind of search is also dual career issues. So um, like me, Garrett's married to somebody who's smarter and nicer than he is, and I don't think he'll mind saying that, but his wife also has a really cool career as a consultant. And when you're a dual career couple, you really have to figure out how you're going to make it work for both couples. And uh, Garrett and his wife, Laura, have done a great job, I think, of figuring this out along the way so that they both have careers that are valuable and um, and rewarding to them. And and my wife and I have kind of had the same, um, the same, I wouldn't say, it's a, it hasn't been a struggle. It's been really quite easy, but it's been communication and willingness to be flexible. Um, so I think it's kind of neat to think about career choices, too, when you're doing it as part of a relationship that it's not just you. It's it's really a partnership or a team that you have to kind of balance this out. So that's kind of the underlying thing that I know Garrett didn't mention, but I think that's that's part of what you you brought out and part of why he made some of his choices is it's not just about me. It's about us. Yeah. And, and you know, that what you just said goes into all sorts of relationships, whether they be your personal relationships and, and between you and your partner, or whether it be the relationships you have at work and the organization that you're part of. And I think individuals who can figure out how to make those work across all of those aspects um, oftentimes end up uh, doing great things as part of that organization or part of that team. So I think that's a, a great additional uh, point that you made there, Mike. Yeah, you can lay it out to having kids too. What's best for your kids? Do you move them or not? Or when they're grown up, how far do you want to be? I mean, you kind of have that right now and that this phase of your life is kids and grandkids and things like that. And how does that all balance out? So it's really complicated um, to kind of figure all these things out, isn't it? Yeah, it, it sure is. Uh, sometimes it's complicated or it may seem complicated, but most of the times it's really quite simple. If you know what your priorities are, uh, it, it, it's a pretty easy decision to make. I love that, Bela. I think that's, that's really true where it's have your priorities straight before you go into the decision-making process and the decision becomes much easier. That decision becomes obvious most of the times. 
Yeah. I mean, as somebody who's made a major career and life move in the last couple of years, right? Same thing is what are the priorities and what are the trade-offs and right? The relationships that you've built over time are, um, are deep and rich and meaningful and valuable. And how do you balance all these things? And yeah, I don't, I think there is an easy answer and it's just knowing what your priorities are. Yep, exactly. Well, before we get too, uh, into, uh, relationship, uh, psychology, um, Here's another thing that I thought that really bounced out at me. Uh, this notion or the importance of sort of interdisciplinary working teams and that a lot of advancements these days are actually being made at the intersections of various different disciplines, whether it be uh, organizational uh, industrial psychology and computer science, as he spoke about, or other things. And I, I think that's a really important message that people can think about. Um, you know, and this notion of, of, of data and, and this notion that data by itself is almost fundamentally worthless and what you do with that data uh, is, is what makes it valuable. And in order to figure out what you can do with that data, oftentimes it takes not just the data scientist, but as Garrett said, you got to figure out what question to ask. And oftentimes that's a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary point of view you need to take to figure out what the right question is. So I thought that was another key take takeaway for me. Yeah. The world needs experts. Don't get me wrong, but the world needs boundary spanners more, right? People who can, who can connect the dots and integrate. Um, and yeah, this idea of, I think, again, this is one of life, a life truism or a, a core moment. Um, in the podcast is figuring out the right questions to ask is huge. And I think about after he said that to me, it really hit me that this is one of those things that cuts across so many different areas of life and of being an entrepreneur, right, as well as figuring out what's the right question. Um, and, and then we can come up with the answer. But so many times we come up with the answers first, right? Right. Absolutely. Right. We, we have an answer searching for a question uh, yep. or oftentimes, you know, uh, as I see in my uh, fellow engineers, uh, uh, we we often have an invention looking for a problem to solve, and uh, we have the the we have that backwards. It should be uh, let's figure out what problem we want to solve, and then or ask or what question we want to answer. Same same analogy there, and then from that figure out what to do next. Yeah, you know, the, and that really. Oops, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead, Mike. Well, that really lines up with where we wound up, which is I think the idea of data analytics for entrepreneurs, right? It sounds really good and it's a tool, it's a hammer that we can use. But I think Garrett's point that most entrepreneurs aren't at the point uh, in terms of the viability of their business and the number, the amount of data that they have access to and the clear conception of the questions to really have a ton of use uh, for analytics, like somebody in a medium or large organization with a ton of data would have. And answering those questions Figuring out the questions first as an entrepreneur should be priority one. And then as the business grows and you have the data to support an analytics-based approach to providing customer value, delivering products and services, et cetera, um, that's the right time to, to start thinking about analytics. So I think it all comes full circle and is a nice way to tie this all together. Yeah. The, w the one thing I want to build on what you just said there, because it reminded me of another thing that Garrett talked about, is this notion of the CEO or founders groups. Uh, that you can often find in, in sort of the general business community that you're a part of. Uh, they're basically organizations uh, that oftentimes get together once a month, once a quarter, 
and it's a group of CEOs, founders uh, that maybe sit down and have dinner together uh, and talk about some of the challenges they're having uh, within their businesses. Uh, often these groups take various different flavors. Uh, some are highly organized uh, and very structured, some less so. Um, but I think that uh, I have found them valuable in my past. I know several entrepreneurs uh, that in the venture business we've invested in, uh, they belong to these groups. And uh, so if you're, if you're a founder or an entrepreneur um, and you have a business, uh, look around your community. Uh, I know a, a person here in upstate New York uh, who uh, once a quarter drives to Boston. It's about a three and a half hour drive because he belongs to a group out there of CEOs and they sit down and they talk about the challenges that they're having in their business and they sort of help and mentor each other. Uh, and here again, uh, this is invaluable. It's, it takes a little bit of your time, uh, but it's certainly, I think, uh, a great, great opportunity to uh, hone your skills, number one, and number two, to share your experiences with others that may help them. Couldn't agree more. Okay, I think that's good. Let's wrap it, Mike. Okay. Well, first, thanks to Garrett Howardson, our guest today, and Bela, thanks to you. Uh, and most importantly, thanks to you, our listeners. We're really happy that you joined us today in uh, our little podcasting adventure this week. Um, and hopefully you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. Um, as usual, we have our two small requests, and one is if you have questions about what we've discussed, suggestions about topics or potential guests like what we did today, um, based on a reader question, uh, get in touch with us. Our email address is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And second, if you like what we're doing, hit subscribe on your podcast app or a like. It's uh, free uh, and even be radical in considering writing us a quick review. That'll help us continue to grow as we kind of um, look towards the future to widen the base. Um, if you know others that might find us interesting, you can help us out by sharing us with them um, in the way and form uh, you prefer. Uh, but we appreciate your help. So that's it for this week. Thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Sounds great, Bela. That's it for this week from over here in beautiful Münster, Germany. Bela, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.